0: Good morning and welcome to another episode of the Mana Podcast, Daily Bread for the Daily Christian. My name is Sam Jeske. I serve as the pastor at Our Shepherd Lutheran Church in Crown Point, Indiana. And thank you so much for tuning in this morning and making this part of your day. I'm glad you're here. This episode is one of a uh, three-part interview uh, that I have with my friend uh, Derek Rabbers, who is a high school physics and chemistry teacher in Kenne Moraine, Wisconsin. And today we're going to be digging into a really tough topic, but a really beneficial one and exceptionally relevant today. Can I love the Bible and science? With that, I'm going to let Derek take it away. Um, with me today, I got a really special guest, a really good friend of mine, um, a buddy that I've known for quite some time and uh he's a fellow geek he loves uh i believe he's a trekkie fan more than he's a star wars fan but um we will (laughs) forget we'll forgive that um (laughs) although i don't know given given some of what uh, star wars has come out with recently maybe it's time for me to jump ship too. literally uh literally jump to a different ship Uh, it sounds like there's room on the enterprise for someone like me anyway um uh enough of it enough of that uh with me today is uh uh, my my buddy and friend derek rabbers who serves as a uh a science teacher at kettle moraine lutherans high school in kettle moraine wisconsin derek thanks for hanging out with us today
1: hello everyone i'm i'm glad to to join in this will be the first podcast i ever do so i'm ready to make plenty of mistakes and long (laughs) awkward pauses but uh well, don't, <laughs> I'm looking forward to this. Yeah.
0: Well, don't worry about the mistakes thing. You're, you're in plenty good company. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so um, Derek and I have, uh, like I said, we've known each other for a while. And, and for at least the past couple of years, I've kind of, um, you know, maybe a, um, I remember not all that long ago, I had I had some questions about the expanding rate of the universe or expansion rate of the universe. It, and he, he sent me some good articles there. But Derek has been a solid resource for... Um, asking questions namely about um, science and, uh, and and the Christian faith. Um, and this is an exceptionally pertinent discussion point today, especially, um, um, well, first of all, if you look at, say, U.S.-based data that would show uh, 24 to 3.1% um, of the United States population identifies as atheist, you have 4% identifying as agnostic, and 22% are identifying as non-religious. And, um, and a lot of this we're seeing dramatically increase within the upcoming generation, that's Generation Z. In um, a 2018 survey on Generation Z, more than a third of Gen Z is convinced that it is impossible to know with certainty if God is real. And it seems that truth is at, is relative at best and at worst altogether at knowable, uh, unknowable. Um, and that same survey suggests that nearly half of Gen Z and millennial Americans insist on some kind of factual evidence to support their beliefs. Um, And lumped in that, there is a, um, well, as a result of that, you know, it's not a surprise that many Americans today are, they're jaded out by any idea of God because it is presented as, or at least perceived to be, unknowable or incompatible with scientific data and evidence. So, One thing that, you know, Derek and I wanted to talk about today is really, I guess, under the heading, um, can I love science and the Bible? And so, um, Derek, um, in light of kind of what I was reading, or maybe just if someone were to ask you that question, can I love science and the Bible, um, what would you say to him?
1: I would start out by saying that you, you can and I, I'm in one of those categories that I love science. I I grew up on the Magic School Bus and Bill Nye the Science Guy and a lot of other PBS shows and Discovery shows um, from the good days of Discovery Channel. And um, I just grew up with a fond love of space and science and understanding the world around me. And from very early on, I, I was also brought up in a... a Christian Lutheran grade school. So the, my worldview was always based in Christianity, um, But I and I was viewing science through the lens of Christianity. So I always knew that there were some things that did not jive with the Christian faith from science, but I knew that there was still much to gain and much to learn from science um, by studying it and learning it. And it's it's been a journey. It's been an ongoing journey of trying to find a, a nice. What do, what do we Lutherans say? There's always the happy medium or the narrow Lutheran. Yeah, the um, yeah the narrow
0: Lutheran middle.
1: <laughs> yeah, there is, and I think that applies to many things in life. And science is one of those where you have to be. You kind of have to ride the line of your the absolutes of the Christian faith, um, and that is that is where you are anchored, but science is a gift of God above, above nothing else, or apart from anything else, and we have been greatly blessed through scientific thinking and discoveries, and some of science has helped us see the beauty of God and the wisdom of his creation, and so I, that's a long way of answering the question, but that's kind of where I would, where I would start answering that question, Sam.
0: Yeah, so um, I, I think um, it, what you brought out was something really important, is that there's, um, I think, you know, there's, there's a, I'm trying to think of how to say it, there's a false dichotomy that is often imposed, especially on the youth of America today, say teenagers, namely in Generation Z, and you see this within millennials too, but that, like I alluded to already from this uh, this Barna survey, um, that there's an incompatibility with science and the Bible. Or teens, or we'll say just, but yet the youth of America today, or anybody for that matter, they have to choose between faith and reason, or faith and science, Um uh, what is evidentially proven or what is evidentially shown versus what the Bible tells us to be? Which, and again, the thing what what that what that presupposes is that kind of like what you were saying is that the the natural world that we see around us is not evidence for the existence of a God, um, or a divine creator, a personal, um, benevolent, omniscient, omnipotent being who's all able, all powerful, all wise, um, who created everything with intentionality and design and and purpose um so yeah it's uh having that christian frame view or that uh, that that uh that point of view that that frame of mind as you go about doing this i think you used the word lens it was the lens through which i viewed the world around me um i think that that's a great that's a great first place to start um uh so well you know not all that long ago you and i were talking about um the um well i suppose before we jump into that you 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 brought up something also very interesting you talked about um walking a, that 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 middle road um because of uh you know towing the line between two uh ditches maybe you know the skillet on the one hand and charybdis on the other so um, what is the what are the two ditches when it comes down to like you were alluding to before as we walk that that narrow middle road?
1: I think it's one the one ditch on um, on one side I think is easy to talk about and that's just to to bury your head in the sand when it comes to anything scientific to to view science as antagonistic against Christianity to view all uh, licensed scientist or anyone who is within the scientific community as being against Christianity, and you, you stick exactly with what the Bible says, and, that's, and that is great, but you, you kind of cast aside anything that is science, any type of scientific data, anything that has a scientific theory behind it. You know, that, that's one extreme. And then the other extreme the other ditch, to the other side, um, might be kind of the—I'm going to try to use the correct words here. The I don't know if moralism is the right word, but where you go into the, the 21st century thinking, the, the grander thinking that is pervasive in the world today, that everything is relative, and I'm just going to pick and choose what I like. I like this from Christianity or from my own Christian faith. I like this because it serves me best here. I like from science, these studies, and these worldviews because, again, it serves my purpose best. Right. And with there, you're putting the focus on yourself, and that is, in my opinion, pretty pervasive in today's world. And I I would see that as kind of the ditch off to the other side.
0: Yeah, that you make a very, very, very good point there of, um, either be it, uh, selectively citing information or observations that benefit my argument that I'm kind of, or my little worldview. So being very relative, subjective about mm-hmm. things, um, as opposed to a little striving for a little bit more of a comprehensive holisticness about things. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, like, uh, um, and and, I, and I'll say you know you make a great point. I think um, there are certainly Christians who, uh, instead of kind of you know embracing, um, you know science as a whole. And again, and, and that's and you and I will probably have to to probably start by defining that too, because I think even, um, even that word can be fraught with a litany of different definitions, and that can cause some serious unproductivity when it comes to. Um, having this discussion, uh, so we'll, we maybe we'll need to define that in a minute here, but um, uh, maybe me selectively citing data or statistics or whatever to to make my argument, may, be it as a um, you know, as like a say I'm making a case for Christianity, a Christian apologetics discussion, um, or inversely where um where maybe I deliberately glaze over some, some stuff, or I, I'm not being honest in the, in the case of uh, scientific research and discovery, where there are things that I just simply, with my, um, a naturalistically based worldview, I'm not in a position to be able to effectively answer. Um, and then I end up kind of borrowing, scaffolding, or, or scaffolding or framework from a God-centered worldview in order to substantiate my godless worldview. Um, so, um, that, and that's a good point. Um, let me ask you this too, because like I said before, there's always a, a potentiality for misunderstanding here. I think sometimes when people use the word science, they're referring to the scientific method. And other times when people use the word science, they actually are referring to the natural world. And maybe you know what I'm talking about here. Um, oh, Kind of. Could you? And so, uh, you? yeah, sure. I, I can explain a little bit more. Um, it's, um, you know, I, I, I've, I've maybe in my interactions with people, um, uh, people will say, well, you know, how, um, you know, they'll, they'll say that there's, there's no evidence for the existence of God, or they'll talk about that there's an incompatibility, or... Um, or uh, you know they'll accuse Christians of the God of the gaps arguments and they'll say that eventually you know you you Christians who point to the gaps to substantiate your God's existence eventually science will cover those gaps and will be blah blah blah. And you're probably familiar with the with uh, arguments similar to that. But mm-hmm. inherent to those discussions, I I sense is you one thing that you need to do first is you need to probably define what the word science means because I think sometimes, you know, on the one hand, people use it to def- to say basically scientific methodology. So how we go about observing, or measuring, quantifying, like the scientific method, which I learned a long time ago as a kid, and I wholly confess I can't remember the what the five steps. Of, it was it's a five steps. <laughs> oh, this is embarrassing.
1: <laughs> I think I think the last time I, we taught it in we taught it back in um earlier this year for the freshmen and, and sophomores and depending on what source you look at there are either five or six or seven steps. I think the it's in my chemistry textbook here. I like it best from here where it talks about the scientific method not being linear but is it's kind of two circles and I'll try to I'll try to find this. Um, it's right here next to me but yeah you're I think you're right. The science, and people say, it's not, it's a discovery new to science. It is quantifiable. We have to be able to put a number on it, or we have to be able to apply um, math to it, an equation to it, to be able to say that, yes, this is true, or no, it's not true. yeah, Here it is. So, yeah, it consists... I like it this way. It consists of two circles that kind of eat each other. There are, you make observations, and then you've got your hypothesis. And then after you get your hypothesis, it goes into this first circle of experiments, conclusion, and revised hypothesis. And that's one misconception. Or that's, and that's a kind of a straw man, too, that kind of gets put up, is that when the layman hears people say, a scientific theory. They'll say, "Oh, it's just a theory. It's not really substantiated." A theory is a working model within the scientific community. That if it's if it's a theory, it usually means that there's a lot of evidence to support it. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it doesn't get to the point of becoming a theory. Right? They call it they call it a theory because they can. Science must be falsifiable. You must be able to come back with new data and say that this theory holds up, that this theory predicted this data, or this new data um, throws a wrench into the works. Mm-hmm. It's happening right now in a, in a couple different realms in science. It's happening in particle physics, mm-hmm. and it's happening in cosmology. Particle physics, they're expecting... There's this big... It's one of the biggest, most expensive devices ever devised by man. It's called a Large Hadron Collider, it's in Switzerland, I believe, and I forget yeah. how many miles it is around, but it is underground. It's the largest particle accelerator that we've built so far, and they, what they do is they take protons and they accelerate them close to the speed of light, incredibly high energies. The higher the energy they can get, the smaller the distances they can probe, So we're not, if you remember some of high school science, all matter is made of atoms. Inside an atom we've got electrons moving around the nucleus. In the nucleus we've got protons and neutrons. And then within those protons and neutrons we've got particles called quarks. Uh, There are three of each in the proton and in the neutron. And those quarks are elementary particles. There's As far as our theory right now for particles there's nothing smaller than that and they've got the standard model of particle physics and it works pretty well for right now but it also makes some other predictions about these other particles that scientists are hoping to find one day but as new data had been coming out from the large hadron collider they weren't finding these particles and they're saying oh if we just up the power of the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider, then we'll find them at this next energy level at the smaller distances. And I haven't looked at the very recent findings, or I think the, it might be down right now for repairs to up the power even more. But there, you always have to be able to go back and falsify data, and, or falsify, not falsify the data, falsify the theory to say that it's correct and we can move on, and we can refine it, or um, it's not correct, and we have to make a new theory. Um, where was this all coming from? This is all coming from Oh, what science is, correct?
0: Yeah, we're kind of getting to... Yeah, yeah, that's what we were alluding to.
1: So that's what science is. It is a way of explaining the natural world using models. I like the term model best because... A model you can you can pick it up you can hold it you can look at it from various different angles you can change it if you want to because a model is not what is in nature it is a representation of what we are seeing in nature
0: right and that's and that and is huge it, that's huge because um, like I was saying before if um, we will say you know um, you know people will say you know like especially when we we appeal to things that are very very clearly alluding to a meta narrative beyond uh, beyond the natural world. Certainly maybe things that you can observe or notice within the natural world, but um um but it's it's something beyond that. It's um and so, you know, oftentimes you'll have discussions with people and they'll, and and uh it's namely relating to Christian faith or something like that. And um eventually you'll hear something they'll say well because science says so or because um we can discover this in science and again like i said i think sometimes people conflate the word science to mean they'll eat you used i liked your definition a way of exploring the natural world using models it's not we wouldn't say it's the natural world in and of itself it's a way of like you said of exploring the natural world using models so kind of like what you were saying um whether it be Um, you're studying the you're you're looking at like kind of like what you were saying particle physics or you're looking at uh, um, like you said all you know all matter being made of atoms and and you're studying you know protons and neutrons and um, so on and so forth Um, we would when we when we talk about science allows us or science blank we're not talking about the natural world as we are more a, a better way to define it is not talking about the natural world as opposed to Referring to it as a um, the means or um, the way that we explore the natural world and using models or um, yeah, is that about right?
1: Yeah, that's about right. Okay. Yep. yep.
0: And again, it, it's important to have that definition down because I think sometimes I think I think there are Christians who get into this. And you kind of alluded to this before, too, where, like, on the one hand, I as a Christian can, like, I, I selectively cite the data or some of this the science that I present is kind of, like, quasi-scientific in nature, where it it mm-hmm. pseudoscience, where it sounds scientific, but it's actually not. Um, mm-hmm. um, or, like you alluded to before, where I selectively cite things as opposed to striving for an objective presentation of the natural world. Um, you know, I kind of, like, cherry-pick from God's you know God's created buffet, so to speak, to somehow um, legitimize my position as opposed to like you were saying, um, going after or or actually sitting down and listening to and reading the counter objections or the um, you talked about um, the need for, you said falsifying a theory and you should I, I'd love for you to for, for listeners and for myself, quite frankly, if you want to explain that a little bit more,
1: Uh, What it means to be able to make a theory falsifiable. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Go go on, run on that for a little bit.
1: Sure. Yeah. I'll I'll talk about this maybe because maybe some people have heard of it. There's this problem right now in theoretical physics because we've built these huge particle accelerators and we are we can only probe so far um, with how small we can look and there are still unanswered questions about um, some big things. would be like how gravity, well, we know how gravity works, but we cannot combine all our theories together. There are some disconnects between how gravity works and how really small particles work. This is the realm of quantum physics. And so one of the biggest theories or maybe more well-known theories to try to wrap all this together with a neat little bow is string theory. And string theory has a lot of bold predictions, many universes. Um, We're familiar with three dimensions of space and one dimension of time with string theory or M-theory. I think there are about a dozen or a couple dozen different dimensions, spatial dimensions, which is kind of beyond our comprehension because we just interact with three dimensions of space. And the thing about string theory is right now it cannot be proven incorrect or correct because it deals at distances and energies that are just unattainable by our technology today. Mm-hmm. And so there are some scientists that are saying, okay, do we just kind of hold on to this theory and kind of just work out the math and use these equations um, and then wait for the technology to catch up? And then some others are saying, is this really science if it's if it cannot be falsified? And, and this is kind of um, a dividing line in the scientific community. Do we use criteria other than what we can test with our instruments and our senses? Can we go off of... Of um, scientific, and not scientific. Can we go off of just how beautiful the mathematical equations look like? How many problems and how neat it is? How many consistencies does it have? Can we use that to substantiate or falsify a scientific theory? And this is a big dividing line. Some scientists don't really don't like that idea because that is one of the central tenets of science: of being a uh, theory being made falsifiable. There one of the biggest examples of a theory made false was if you go back to copernicus who came up with the model of the solar system where the sun is heliocentric in the center.
0: theory correct yeah
1: the heliocentric theory correct previous to that was the idea that the earth was in the center and that the sun revolved around the earth and then the the planets they would go around the Earth, but then they would make these weird backtracks in the sky. It was called retrograde motion. And so they came up with clever ideas to explain this. They came up with things called epicycles, where the, the other planets orbited the Sun you know, while the Sun orbited the Earth. And it kind of looked weird, but it kept the Earth in the center because that was our perspective. That's what our senses told us was the truth. And then Copernicus came along with this model. And lo and behold, it worked out a lot better. And other observations then falsified that idea. Uh, we were able to, uh, they were trying to look for something called parallax, where you can see a shift in the stars in the night sky, depending on where Earth is. Just like if you, if you hold out your finger and you focus on something that's far away, if you close either your left eye And then your right eye, you'll see your finger shift in comparison with the background. And that's what we were looking for with the stars, with parallax. The thing is, it's kind of hard to see that with stars because most stars are many, many light years away. There's only maybe 20 or so stars that are close enough that we can actually observe this parallax. And it's still only a couple, not even a degree in the night sky of how um, how minute these changes are. But anyway, that's a that is my digression on um, the falsifiability of science. Hopefully that.
0: No, makes no, sure that. no, it really no, and that's all fascinating. Like just seriously, uh, that's just so awesome. But it, um, you got me thinking about the, the um, there has to be, if you just if everything is just purely conjecture, where it's like in 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 some respects you kind of cook up these ideas in a vacuum, and. There's, there's no way that you can really probe or dig any deeper. There's no way that you can interrogate this model or worldview. It has just, just to be accepted as a given. Um, when, you know as you're kind of talking about this, the, the inherent need for something to, if, if it's going to be true, it has to have the hallmarks of it being able to be falsified. Like it makes claims that could be falsified. Uh, if that's fair to is that is that fair to what you're kind of getting at? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, with uh, just and I just wanted to make sure because uh, there's a there's a very interesting intersection with what you were kind of talking about this divide within the scientific community right now um, that you you've kind of articulated for us where there is a um, this this argument over whether or not something needs to be falsified in order for it to be held as um, uh, operatively convictional or convictionally operative I don't know which one I should be what, what should be the adverb there um, But anyway, point is is that can we use, you know does this does it have to be falsifiable if we if for it to be genuine or for it to be workable or um, and I, and again as I' as I'm thinking about this as I'm hearing you talk, there's a very interesting intersection with um, world religions today. I think I think some people say, well you know you Christians, you have your Bible. But then you have, um, but but then you have um, the Quran, and then you have the Book of Mormon, and then you have, um, you know, you have uh, your, you know, all sorts of other sacred texts. Um, you have your writings that are that are sacred uh, to the Hindus, to um, Buddhists, to you know, and so on and so forth. What are you supposed to make of all that? Aren't they all on equal playing field? Um, and i would say you know when it, when it comes down to when we look at uh, um, when we look at christianity christianity does not unfold in the anecdotal christianity does not unfold in a vacuum in this unassailable inaccessible uh vacuum that that took place outside of time and space like it's part of a maybe it's because of a part of it's a part of a divine drama and i'm thinking of like the greek pantheon right i'm mean, so much of that mm-hmm. That was written down and shared in stories. I mean, these were events that were you could not, you you know you would they would see a thunderstorm and they would say, see here's what's going on. Zeus is fighting so and so, or is, is upset about this, or, um, you know the the crops wouldn't grow, and they'd say, see you know so and so, you know I, and I anyway so and so forth. Um, but when it came down to these highly articulated. Um, dramas like between the greeks where you know there was jealousy and conspiracy and murder and this and so and so said this there was no way there's no way that you could measure that or observe that or abs- or assess that um all of that stuff just hand it just happened in and i say it happened in quotations um in in this unassailable um this unassailable divine drama um it can't be scrutinized whatsoever. It just has to be accepted as reality. There's no way that you can interrogate it or poke at it. There's no way I can kind of like hold it in my hands and and assess it and observe it and study it and measure it. Um, But then then you get to Christianity, which marries the advancement of salvation to historical narrative to a degree that is matched by no other religion, for one. Um, And here's the other really cool thing, is not only is that the events of Christianity... Um, is it shamelessly married, as you, like, if, say, for example, you know, if you read the, the Gospel of Luke, right, which we all memorize, Luke chapter 2, right? In those days, Caesar <laughs> Augustus issued a decree, right? But, you know, and, and we, we just kind of roll it off the tongue. We don't think much of it, but it's just like, you know, think how wisely that is. You know, Luke, who said, I carefully observed and, and studied these things, and I've written up an actua- an accurate, factual account of the events that took place. If somebody was trying to create a lie or they knew what they were creating was a, was totally bogus, every time that you add details that could be falsified like this, um, you inherently run the risk of exposing this to be a lie. Whereas if you're trying to, you know, I see, and I, you see the hallmarks of this in a lot of other religions, um, where the events unfold very much in a vacuum or unassailable to scrutiny, like uh, Hinduism or um, I'll say it, the Quran, uh, you have a lot of this, which, which basically was, um, unfolded in the minds of, or in the mind singular of Muhammad. And then there's certainly there's, there's factual history to, to say, you, know, you know, like around the life of Muhammad. But if you actually, if you look at the Quran, you will see that details in the Quran are actually not corroborated in history. Case in point, um, the Quran says that Jesus did not die on the cross. Um, which is, I mean, obviously from a Christian perspective, we refute that. But even from a secular perspective, secular historians um, catalog these things too. You look at uh, Josephus and Tacitus. Um, these are, or, or there are other pagan Roman, Greek, and Jewish historians. So these aren't people who got um, skin in the game, so to speak. But you, got, you have non-Christian secular historians who are, who are verifying the historical factual details that the, that the scriptures are presenting. But then here's the other thing that I really like in, in, in teeing off of your comment on falsifiability. Christianity doesn't hide its Achilles heel. In fact, it in openly invites people to take a shot at it, right? You know, I'm thinking of First Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If only for this life do we have hope in Christ, we are to be of most people pitied. Paul is saying, all right, show me the bones of Jesus of Nazareth and you have undone Christianity. And I don't know of any other religion that invites people to take such shots at it. Like here, bring your accusations, bring your skepticism. Um, Come find the bones of Jesus of Nazareth, and you will have undone this. You know, assess these things. You know, you know, investigate these things for yourselves, and you will see that, as, um, uh, you know, as uh, the late Christian apologist Robbie Zacharias once said that uh, you, you, you line up Christianity when it comes to the falsifiability of it next to other world religions. Christianity um, will emerge on top as reliable over every single one, every single time, in every single field.